the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Anthony Davenport. He's the author of Your Score, an insider's secrets to understanding, controlling, and protecting your credit. In 2010, he founded a credit management firm that now represents uh, professional athletes, celebrities, and uh, top financial professionals, as well as regular guys. He's been featured in Forbes, uh, Yahoo Finance, Wise Piggy, and others. He's taught financial literacy to NFL athletes. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, and he's going to join us to talk about his book, your score. So that's coming up uh, later this hour. Also, we're going to talk with Rachel DeGuidis. She's an, a reporter for the Daily Signal. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the effort to revive airmarks in the House, which were banned in 2010. We'll try to give you a bit of that history and why it's being brought up again, um, primarily uh, following a comment made by the president. And we'll talk with Crystal Thornton, Summer Shore, Rebecca Gurney, three of my co-workers. We're going to talk about Thrive, a girls' night out coming up on the 27th of January. And while the tickets are sold out, um, we want to let you know what to expect for those of you who are coming and what to anticipate next time around for those of you uh, who would like to come to our next event. So that's coming up in the latter part of today's program as well. Well, taking a look at uh, some important stories, the House voted today to renew a key foreign surveillance program after a a heated floor debate. There were mixed messages from the president about his support. The renewal to Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, which lets agencies collect information on foreign targets abroad, was approved on a 256 to 164 vote. The bill now heads to the Senate. Well, supporters say it's critical. It's a tool that's necessary to prevent terrorist attacks. We don't know what the terrorists are up to. That's a quote from House Speaker Paul Ryan, who went on to say on the House floor, ahead of the vote, uh, warning of grave consequences if the program was not renewed. We can't send that information to our authorities to prevent terrorist attacks. The consequences are really high. But foes worry about Americans getting swept up in the process. Case in point, the uh, uh, the possibility that that's uh, precisely how the uh, Trump campaign ended up in the crosshairs of the FBI. Uh, as uh, as the bill heads across the Capitol, Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul, a libertarian leaning Republican, suggests that he will mount a filibuster saying no American should have their right to privacy taken away. Uh, the bill passed by the House uh, would allow the FBI to continue uh, querying a key database using search terms for information on Americans. But in an important tweak, it would require investigators to get a probable cause warrant if they want to view the actual content of those communications. Earlier, the House rejected a measure that would have imposed stiffer restrictions on the FBI, creating some confusion. The president briefly took aim uh, this morning at the program, despite his administration's official support for 
renewing it, suggesting 702 was used to badly surveil and abuse his campaign based on the phony Trump dossier. This is the act that may have been used with the help of discredited and phony dossier to so badly surveil and abuse the Trump campaign by the previous administration and others, he tweeted. Well, Trump's opposition, though, didn't last long. Later that same morning, he posted a follow-up tweet clarifying that he Um, has sought changes to the law and uh, voiced support for the surveillance program. With that being said, I have personally directed the fix to the unmasking process since taking office, and today's vote is about foreign surveillance of foreign bad guys on foreign land. We need it. Get smart, he tweeted. I'm just going to leave that alone. It was an apparent attempt to get back at uh, on the same page with his own administration, which backs the so-called 702 program. And it's interesting, um, just moments before the second tweet came out, Judge uh, Napolitano on the Fox and Friends had apparently looked at the camera, speaking directly to the president, asking him to do just that. And he almost quoted him verbatim in this second tweet. Well, the White House on Wednesday had issued a statement opposing an amendment seeking to blunt some of the program's powers and shield communications of Americans who may get caught up in efforts to pick up foreign electronic communications who are supposed to be the target. Uh, In light of the significant concerns that have been raised by members of our caucus and in light of the um, irresponsible and inherently contradictory messages coming out of the White House today, I would recommend that we withdraw consideration of the bill today to give us more time to address the privacy questions that have uh, been raised, as well as to get a clear statement from the administration about their position on the bill. Well, that's a quote from California Representative Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, scratching his head while tweeting. Earlier Thursday, the House voted down the alternative FISA plan that Libertarian Republican Michigan Representative Justin Amash Uh, which would have imposed multiple restrictions on spying. Former FBI Director James Comey also weighed in on the bill Thursday, reflecting the views of many in the intelligence community that the program should be renewed. Through uh, thoughtful leaders on both sides of the aisle, no FISA Section 702 is a vital and carefully overseen tool to protect this country. This isn't about politics. Congress must authorize it, uh, he tweeted. So hearing from uh, Comey, out in the shadows earlier today. Well, while uh, Nancy Pelosi mocked white guys leading the DACA talks, uh, uh, prompting uh, Steny Hoyer's outrage, President Trump today lamented using um, profanity uh, countries uh, that he disapproves of during immigration negotiations, saying, why do we have to uh, have these people from those countries? Again, using profanity in the uh, process in uh, the comments first reported by the Washington Post. Well, the president was referring to people from Haiti, El Salvador and African countries and the temporarily protected status program, the paper said, and suggested the United States should admit more people from countries like Norway instead. That's like really driving the nail into the coffin more deeply. It's one thing to suggest that we shouldn't have immigrants from particular countries to um, put those in contrast to Norway. Now, keep in mind that the Norwegian prime minister had just been uh, here and they held a news conference yesterday. This was an unfortunate use of words. I'm putting it mildly.
Asked about the uh, Post report, the White House did not deny that the president did, in fact, make the comments, which I cannot repeat on the radio because uh, we would lose our license. However, in the Oval Office, apparently you can say whatever you wish. Well, the Trump administration announced on Monday that as many as 200,000 Salvadoran immigrants living in the United States will no longer be allowed to stay because they've decided to end their protected status. Well, the program was intended to be temporary, and it's gone on for more than two decades. So it's uh, it's not it wasn't a uh, uh, a change that they came up with on their own, but they are. Uh, living up to the promise of the uh, of the program, uh, but all of this taking place in the same week when the president met with members of uh, Congress, both the House and the Senate, in a meeting that was televised for about an hour on the DACA program. It can be very frustrating to hear adults communicate, adults with a great deal of authority to make decisions about our future. Now, obviously, I'm not entrusting my life to any of them, but they do have the power to make some important decisions that we ought to be concerned about. Anyway, 15 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Anthony Davenport. His book is titled Your Score, an insider's secret to understanding, controlling and protecting your credit score. We'll get into that in just a bit. Well, House Republicans are about to take the first step to revive airmarks, with officials planning to hold hearings earlier this year. In fact, the 18th and 19th, if I'm not mistaken, uh, mistaken rather, to look at how they might ease back into the practice the corruption and abuse of a system that they banned in 2010. Um, uh, Growing numbers of lawmakers think that they have uh, surrendered too much power by foregoing the airmark. Uh, I'm certain that's the case because you can uh, you can wield a lot of power with them. Well, airmarks, in case you don't know, are funding for the special projects that lawmakers demand for their districts. They are tucked into massive spending bills. They direct money back home for bridges and parking garages. Uh, Pentagon research or roads and river levees. Supporters call them targeted spending, while critics deride the practice as the epitome of pork barrel politics. In fact, we're going to talk later in the five o'clock hour with uh, Rachel DeGuidis, and we're going to talk about some of the pork barrel, uh, also known as airmark spending, uh, that led ultimately to the the uh, House banning the practice back in 2010. There are no firm plans to restore the practice in the near term, but hearings expected later this month and led by Rules Committee Chairman Pete Sessions, a Texas Republican, make good on the promise by House Speaker Paul Ryan Uh, in late 2016 to study the issue. The time is right, said Representative John Culbertson, a Texas Republican, who's one of those pushing for a test run of airmark so Congress can prove it can handle the practice responsibly. I'm going to pause for the laugh track because there really should be one here because the the idea that Congress would uh, handle the practice responsibly is laughable. Okay, pause over. A return to airmarks would be a, a bold move, potentially giving party leaders more control over the power of the purse and another tool to reel in maverick lawmakers. But it could also um, reignite the troubling days of uh, bridge to nowhere, other airmark battles that divided Republicans and even landed people in prison. You might want to review that as well. The last time the Republicans ran a congressional airmark factory, they lost control of Congress. Brian Rydell, who's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, reminds us uh, he spent years on Capitol Hill. He goes on to say in 2006, when the Democrats took Congress, the number one issue, according to voters, was pork and corruption. Maybe the Republicans are just counting on people forgetting. You had Jack Abramoff, daily news coverage of campaign contributors getting airmarks. It was a political disaster. 
Well, Mr. Riddle said Republicans have shown they can win elections without bringing home the pork, so there's really no argument for bringing them uh, bringing them back. Mr. Kobelson, though, he uh, calls the uh, excesses of a decade ago knuckleheads who went uh, overboard, many of whom, by the way, are still there. He and other Airmark defenders say that they can prove Congress can direct spending without inviting corruption, and perhaps they can, but... Uh, Again, their history doesn't exactly inspire confidence. As House Speaker John Boehner was the key figure in ending airmarks, he challenged fellow Republicans to give up pork as a way of drawing distinctions with Democrats after Republicans lost congressional majorities in 2007, then imposed a full ban once Republicans regained control of the House in 2011. A majority of Congress has been elected since then, meaning they have never served on Capitol Hill when pork was the coin of the realm. But they are hearing from senior lawmakers who say Important local decisions are being made by federal agencies while ignoring the input of members of Congress. But there might be another way around that without reinstating uh, this whole uh, project. But members are increasingly, according to Representative Tom Cole out of Oklahoma, increasingly realizing how much power they gave up to the executive branch. He's also the vice chairman of the Rules Committee. Mr. Culberson pointed to the Houston area and last year's devastating hurricane and flooding as an example of where airmarks could be helpful. He said Houston needs a third reservoir, that the Army Corps of Engineers is reluctant to front load the money for such a major project. It would take forever, if at all, to get the Army Corps of Engineers to move on it. In the end, Mr. Culberson, who's chairman of um, one of the spending subcommittees and has more power over the purse than most other lawmakers, said he was able to draw up language in the recent disaster relief bill to make clear that Harris County should get the third reservoir by writing a specific set of definitions for how to spend the money. So another way of accomplishing the same thing. But as he was describing the hurdles to a reporter, a lawmaker from South Carolina chimed in, that those who aren't on the Appropriations Committee don't have that option. Instead, he said, rank-and-file lawmakers have to go um, beg spending committee members to add money to specific accounts. Then the rank-and-file go to agencies and say they were responsible for getting the extra cash and suggest how they want it spent. Here's what they'll um, do with that. Mr. Culberson balling up a piece of paper and tossing it into the flames as if of a nearby fireplace. Well, the debate is um, beginning again in earnest. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk in greater detail in the five o'clock hour with uh, Rachel Delgaitis, who's a reporter for The Daily Signal, writing on uh, the effort to revive airmarks. Now, some are suggesting there's a way to establish the practice of airmarks with greater oversight. So it would be a different kind of policy. We'll see what they come up with. And again, there are hearings that begin the 18th and extend. uh, The the 18th, I think, is just with members of the committee. The 19th includes outsiders, agencies, and so on. We'll try to keep an eye on that. Some conservatives are uh, are sounding the alarm over this reinstating of the airmarks in Congress as the president voiced support. And that's uh, really why much of the attention was uh, was redrawn on this issue, because the president made some rather um, confusing remarks on reinstating the airmarks um, in a conversation either today or yesterday. Meanwhile, the Trump administration announced uh, today that it will open the door for states to impose work requirements for Medicaid recipients in a major shift that could affect millions of low-income people receiving the benefits. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services described the decision as a response to requests from states to test work requirement programs. Medicaid needs to be more flexible so that states can best address the needs of this population. Our fundamental goal is to make a positive and lasting difference in the health and wellness of our beneficiaries and today's announcement is a step in that direction. That's a quote from CMS Administrator Seema Verna in a statement. Well, a letter sent to uh, 
State Medicaid directors today said the move would help improve Medicaid enrollee health and well-being through incentivizing work and community engagement. Our policy guidance was in response to states that asked us for flexibility. They need to improve their uh, programs and to help people in achieving greater well-being and self-sufficiency, Vernus said. Noting the agency has received um, demonstration project proposals from 10 states, Arizona, Arkansas, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Utah, and Wisconsin. Well, the test programs, according to CMS, could make uh, work, skills, training, education, job search, volunteering, or caregiving a requirement for Medicaid for able-bodied work-age adults. It would not apply to those getting benefits due to a disability, elderly beneficiaries, children, and pregnant women. Well, the move was pitched as an effort to turn the page for states in the Medicaid program to give them more freedom to design innovative programs and results and to remove bureaucratic barriers. The plan will likely face a political battle, putting it mildly, which uh, could lead to legal challenges for the Trump administration over concerns that people would lose their Medicaid health care coverage. The plan comes after months of failed negotiations on Capitol Hill to repeal and replace the former uh, president's landmark health care legislation. Obamacare, which still stands. Under current law, people are not legally required to hold a job or to be employed to receive Medicaid benefits, but states can request federal waivers to test new ideas for the program. The Trump administration's latest action outlines guidelines that states should consider um, to have their proposals for waivers imposing work requirements federally approved. The waivers would be uh, demonstration projects. Medicaid is a federally uh, state collaboration covering more than 70 million people, or about one in five Americans, making it the largest government uh, health insurance program. Medicaid was expanded during the Obama administration when an option was uh, provided to allow states to cover millions more low-income adults. CMS said today that uh, they would support state efforts to align Medicaid work requirements with those of the uh, of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANP, or TANF, which they say may streamline eligibility and help reduce the burden on states and uh, beneficiaries. Well, under the new policy, states have to fully comply with federal disability and civil rights laws to ensure that dis- disabled individuals have the necessary protections to make sure that they're not uh, inappropriately denied coverage. CMS said uh, states will be required to offer modifications to individuals with disabilities and will be required to exempt individuals determined to be mentally frail or have a, uh, an acute condition that would prevent them from complying with the new requirement. The Trump administration has been voting Vocal about adding the new requirement for almost a year, but a study from the nonpartisan Kaiser Family Foundation revealed that more than half of working age adults on Medicaid are already employed. Nearly 60 percent work um, either full time or part time, mainly for employers that do not offer health insurance. The study said most who are uh, working report uh, reasons like illness, caring for a family member or going to school. The Kaiser Family Foundation also conducted a poll in 2017 that revealed 70 percent of the public support allowing states to impose work requirements on Medicaid beneficiaries, says uh, Judy Solomon of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities with the with regard to health, uh, health care, health insurance. It is a very major change in Medicaid that for the first time would allow people to be cut off for not meeting a work requirement, regardless of the hardship they may suffer. Well, that may or may not be the case as these programs would have to 
uh, pass muster. Uh, but we'll see what the uh, what the states request more specifically to get federal approval and whether or not um, it would make it a hardship for people on Medicaid to continue on the program if they are in quotes, as the program requires able bodied. 30 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. In just a few moments, talking with Anthony Davenport, author of Your Score, an insider secret to understanding, controlling, and protecting your credit score. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm just sitting here in the studio waiting for my guest who may not arrive. Is that still the case, Clark? You don't have anyone on the other end of the phone? I have, to, I have to tell you, I'm a little frustrated because you spend a good part of the day, you read the book, you spend time preparing for the interview, you don't spend time doing other things that you might do during this time, and the guest doesn't arrive. I had an annual appointment today that's uh, one of those medical appointments women of a certain age have to have once a year, and I tell you, I started out in a bad mood, and it's just gone downhill from here. The good news is, later in the program, we're going to talk with Crystal Thornton. Summer Shore and Rebecca Gurney. These are three of my co-workers who are helping to put together Thrive. In fact, they're going to be featured uh, for Thrive, a girls' night out that's coming up on the 27th. Tickets are sold out. We are so thrilled, so I hope many of you will be a part of the uh, the crowd. But we're going to talk about uh, what to expect at the event. And also for those of you who will not be joining us this time around to perhaps uh, give you an encouragement to sign up early next time because it's going to be a great night to uh, a girls' night out. There's going to be dinner, and just it's going to be a great, uh, a great time. Anyway, apparently my guest is. Uh, I spent a lot of time on this. My my guest has not yet been reached. We're working on it. Well, a federal judge recently dismissed the first of three lawsuits against President Donald Trump that claim it's unconstitutional for a president to own and profit from a business while in office. We're talking about the emoluments clause. It just got booted out of court. Now, what does this mean? Was it on uh, they didn't have standing? Was it on the merits? Well, Judge George Daniels of the Southern District of New York um, authored the opinion. It was filed the 21st of last month, and it gave a win to the president. But more generally, the opinion defends the principle that people cannot sue politicians in order to settle political debates in court instead of in the legislature, uh, legislature rather, or at the ballot box. Well, the watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington sued Trump last January, and they claim that his extensive business uh, interests constitute ongoing violations of the Constitution's Foreign and Domestic Emoluments Clause. Now, those provisions serve to keep certain federal officials from taking uh, compensation from foreign state actors or the states in exchange for fed, uh, favorable official treatment. Well, the Domestic Emoluments Clause, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 7, explicitly refers to the president and his salary. But the Foreign Emoluments Clause uh, doesn't, and several legal scholars, particularly National University of Ireland, uh, Maynooth Law Lecturer Seth Barrett Tillman, just to let you know, have persuasively argued that it does not even apply to the president or reach uh, fair market value transactions, such as an ambassador paying the uh, going rate for a room at a Trump hotel. Now, while the government conceded only, and I'm quoting, for purposes of this motion that the Foreign Emoluments Clause binds the president, the court did not ultimately decide whether there was any merit to the plaintiff's novel and far-reaching legal theories. So again, it didn't go to the merits of the case. Uh, Judge Daniels, an appointee of President Bill Clinton dismissed the lawsuit because the plaintiffs lacked 
standing, a constitutional requirement that a plaintiff demonstrate that whoever they sue has caused them some actual concrete uh, injury that the court can remedy. So he uh, they uh, the judge rather said that they apparently lacked standing. Well, as many legal scholars and journalists have, uh, Daniels rejected plaintiff's theory that they had standing to sue the president because their lawyers, ethics experts and law professors have been forced, although their activities have been entirely voluntary, to spend time and resources investigating the president's business interests rather than devoting time to other pursuits. Now, this was their choice and they were not coerced, but that was the argument. Well, they sought a declaration by the court that Trump's business profits are unconstitutional, along with an order for him to divest himself entirely from his business interests. Well, had the lawsuit proceeded, the district court would have uh, invited future lawsuits filed merely to recover the costs of litigation that was filed because of uh, political disagreements. Well, as the judge wrote, under the plaintiff's unbounded definition of standing, for example, a news organization could sue the president by alleging that one or more of his statements forced it to divert resources away from a different story it might have pursued. Surely something more is required. End quote. Again, quoting the judge. Well, perhaps recognizing the weakness of its own standing claim, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington um, uh, apparently had teamed up with hospitality and restaurant workers in New York and Washington who claimed that they could sue the president because it's unconstitutional for them to have to compete with his various restaurants and Hotels, But again, the judge determined that they did not have standing and therefore uh, not ruling on the merits uh, did uh, move forward. Clark, are you telling me we have the guest? All righty, then we will proceed. Well, former mortgage lender, uh, Mr. Davenport, Anthony Davenport, offers a pretty handy one stop guide to understanding and fixing your credit score. Uh, The book is titled Your Score, An Insider's Secret to Understanding, Controlling, and Protecting Your Credit Score. Now, lots of us know we have one, but how does it originate? Who oversees it? And can we have it amended if we think there are uh, are mistakes? He was outraged at practices that he found predatory and non-transparent, and he left the industry to instead provide credit management services, and he brings both sides of his expertise to answering common credit-related questions. And we're going to discuss them here uh, today, my guest is uh, Anthony Davenport. He founded a credit management firm that now represents uh, many professional athletes, celebrities, top financial professionals, and regular folks like you and me. He's been featured in Forbes, Yahoo Finance, Wise Piggy, and others, and he's taught financial literacy to NFL athletes who probably really needed it. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, but today we have him here by phone, and we are delighted to welcome uh, Anthony Davenport. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, you, your first chapter is titled, What We Don't Know Can Hurt Us. Uh, what, <laughs> yeah. You know, we all know that we have a credit score, that it, somehow it's generated, and, and what we do or fail to do contributes to that score. But what don't we know that might, in fact, be uh, really damaging to, to our future? There's so much. Yeah. So the credit bureaus are collecting a ton of data on this, and we never asked them to collect this data. We never gave them permission, but they do, and they make their money by collecting this, this data and then selling it, and they collect things like your name, your address, your social, your date of birth, your phone numbers, your employers, your salary. It goes on and on and on about what they collect and then what they sell, but the problem is so much of it is erroneous, and the systems that they put in place for you to rectify this information are incredibly flawed. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, 
the way that the lenders are looking at this information is they get access to secret data, essentially, that we can't get as consumers. And so as an end result of this, we're, we're left playing this game that we don't know how how to play it. We don't know the rules. Now, one of the and things so we're going to lose. Yeah. One of the points that you make in the book is that it's not really in their best interest uh, it, it, they, there's no incentive for them, that may be a better way to put it, to make sure that the information they collect on us is accurate. Right. So you got to remember who the paying customer is. The paying customer to the credit bureaus are the banks, the lending institutions that are paying them to report this data. And if they make an error or mistake or they have a vendetta against you and they say that you're, you're late or that's the case, the credit bureaus are going to take the side of their customer. So they're always going to take their side and say, if you said they were late, then they were late, and that's that. Hmm. So what is, uh, what is in the score, and how is it used? I think most of us assume it's used if we're going to buy a house or we're looking for a credit card, but it can be used in other ways as well that we may not expect. Yeah, so now a FICO score is being used to determine tons of information, and lenders are looking at credit reports for you know, obviously a mortgage or a car loan, an auto loan, things like that, credit cards, you know, all the things that you would expect. But employers are looking at credit reports now in 70% Mm -hmm. of employment situations. And it's even being used for auto insurance, home insurance, which doesn't make any sense. Like, what does your credit score have to do with whether you're a terrible driver or not, you know? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you help your readers in your score to figure out is, first of all, how to understand the credit score um, and then how to control the information or protect the information that's there. Now, we know of the three major bureaus. One of them was hacked and information was made available Mm -hmm. uh, to those hackers most recently. Um, How reliable are they just in terms of of housing that information that reflects at least to some degree who we are and, and what we've done? They're terrible at it because it, it's a cost center for them to actually make sure the data is correct and then protect it. And so you may recall that when the, the former head of Equifax went in front of Congress, they asked him flat out, do you encrypt your data, which is essentially the only way to protect it? And he goes, I'm not sure. <laughs> and this is months after the hack. Months after the hack, he's like, I don't really know if we, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Like, I don't, I don't know. And I'm like, that's, that's a no. So they don't really care about protecting this data. And, and most of the huge credit monitoring agencies or the people that slice and dice the data, they don't care either because it's expensive to actually protect the data. It adds more hoops to actually protect it. Yeah. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but are we just helpless victims or are there things that we can do? There's a lot you can do. There's a lot you can do. They just don't want you to know it. And that's what we, we, we hid in the book and (laughs) and we took some flack from the, from the credit bureaus for even including some of it. All right. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Anthony Davenport. Uh, The book is titled Your Score, An Insider's Secret to Understanding, Controlling and Protecting Your Credit Score. Did you know you could do all of that? Well, you can. You need the book. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Anthony Davenport. He's the founder of the largest consumer repair firm in New York City. He debunks the myth that understanding credit is too complicated for the average person to understand. And his company, Regal Credit Management, has helped thousands of high-profile celebrities, athletes, and everyday clients navigate the world of consumer debt. His book is titled Your Score, an insider secret to understanding, controlling, and protecting your credit score. Well, where do we begin if we want to try to gain some understanding of, of credit and, and more specifically our credit score. Yeah. So we haven't talked about some of the mistakes that people make. We'll get to that. You want me to get into it? Sure. So one of the biggest things that people make a mistake with is they will walk into applying for a mortgage or some car loan or big thing like that and they don't have any idea what their credit really actually looks like. They don't know what the lenders are looking at in particular. And they will start you know, thinking, I, I, I got a credit report from Experian or from Equifax or from Credit Karma. And they'll think that that is the same thing that the lending institutions are looking at, which is false. And the credit bureaus even paid fines of $25 bucks last year for falsely advertising that the same reports that they were giving out were the same ones that the the banks and lending institutions use. So, you know, we we got into it with with a chapter in the book about how to actually get the real credit report, like ask a realtor friend of yours to get one from a bank because the banks aren't supposed to give it to you directly. That's the biggest mistake that I see people do. But can the average person do that? I don't know anybody that works at the bank. Where do I go? How do I find out what the the banks and other uh, potential lenders are looking at? So if you know a banker well, in some cases, they'll give it to you. Or one of the tips that we mentioned in the book is if you know a real estate agent, because almost everyone knows a real estate agent, they're, they're everywhere. Um, they are very friendly with the banks, and usually the bankers will do what they are asked to do by a real estate agent, so they'll give it to you. And we use that a lot in order to get access to the real report. So what kinds of differences might one expect? You look at your credit report, then you look at what... Uh, these potential lenders are looking at, how much difference is there and, and what would be the, uh, I mean, are they more critical? Are they, they delve in more deeply? What's the difference? So the biggest difference is the scores that you're looking at are not accurate. They're not the same thing as what a lending institution looks at. Uh, they could differ by a few points or they could differ by 30 points or more. It's, it's a huge difference. Uh, the second thing is, the credit reports that you get are only going to show a two-year history. Lending institutions look at a seven-year history report when making a decision mm-hmm. about you. So that's two huge differences. And it's why when someone comes to us and says, I need to have my credit repaired, here's my credit report from Experian, they're not allowed to have a consultation based on that report. We have to see the real thing. So if I find out that my seven-year report is, is much worse than I expected, what, if anything, can I do about that? So if you have late payments uh, or something that's erroneous or something that you want to dispute, the bad news is there's no Easter Bunny, there's no Santa Claus, and there's no one that is going to read your, your well-written letter that you've poured your heart out into. Explaining it all. <laughs> Right. You know, they're just going to they're going to be like uh, there is no human being that opens up your envelope and reads your dispute. 
so, you know, we, we, we had to cover this in, in good detail, but one of the things you have to keep in mind is that the credit bureaus, when you have all these errors and disputes, they're using computers to read the envelopes, slice them open, read the letter, and determine the appropriate response, and then kick out the letter. So what chance do you have of really having it resolved, which is why there was a lot of you know hoopla when Congress found that 40 million credit reports had mistakes on them, mm-hmm. and 60 Minutes did a piece on them, and they said, well, we'll work on getting better, but they really didn't. So if you have an error like that, you have to send the credit bureaus multiple proofs of your identity. And, you know, one of the, the, the tricks that we get into is that you can't just type out a letter and just mail it to them and hope that it works. And you can't fill in their online system for sure. Um, the best thing to do is to, you know, one of the t- tactics is to um, handwrite a letter in cursive <laughs> on different colored paper because the computers have trouble reading that. And that's a good way to correct and rectify the errors and issues that are on there. Well, it sounds pretty discouraging. I mean, we've talked about understanding our our credit score and and the fact that there's more than one. Um, How do we control what's on it? Uh, Writing the letter, as you pointed out, is, is one way. And how do we protect our credit score? Because this sounds pretty ominous and discouraging so far. Well, I recommend that everyone pull their credit every six months. Just like you go to the dentist on a regular basis, you should pull your credit, make sure it's it's where it needs to be and that there's no errors, no blemishes like collections, which jump on credit reports, um, even of people who pay their bills on time. And then you want to dispute any information that's inaccurate. Worst case scenario, just do it once a year. You know, it's New Year's, new you. You know, take a look at your credit, think of where it needs to be and start start rectifying those things. But then if you want to protect your credit, you know, one thing that wasn't really talked about before the Equifax hack is that if you put what's called a security freeze on with each of the three bureaus, you are essentially stopping the credit bureaus from selling your data, which is how they make their money. But that is the only way to actually prevent a thief from stealing your information and using it. Credit monitoring isn't going to do that. It doesn't. It'll only tell you about the theft after it happens, mm-hmm. which it's not really a good time to find out that you've been a victim of theft. So um, putting a security freeze on is the best way to do it. It's not that simple a process. It's not for the squeamish. But if you do it, it will prevent the theft from happening in the first place. And you have to do each of the three agencies separately? Each of them separately, each time you want to unlock or lock your file again. And how long does that last? So it lasts forever. You you unlock it for a period of time or with a specific creditor. I see. And I tell people that it's it's just like, you know, you, you lock your house, you lock your car. You have to lock your credit these days because there's so many thieves that have access to your information. It's impossible that you you weren't a victim of one of the major breaches that happened in the last couple of years. Impossible. Mm. Well, I wish we had more time, but I want to remind our listeners the book is titled Your Score and Insider's Secrets, and there are secrets there to understanding, controlling, and protecting your credit score, things you did not know that will help you uh, along the way, especially if you're looking to buy a home or purchase a car or even find a uh, 
a new job. Uh, I thank you so much for joining us. I wish we had had more time, but uh, perhaps we can do this again. Would love to, Jordine. Hey, thank you so Take much. Care. Again, Anthony Davenport, along with uh, Matthew Ruddy, are the authors of Your Score, an insider secret to understanding, controlling, and protecting your credit score. That was an abbreviated interview, and I, I'm sorry for that because there was, uh, there was a lot of good information, but you can pick up uh, the book in bookstores. It is published by, I have it written here, um, Harcourt, Mifflin, and uh, Houghton. I think it's the other way around. Houghton, Mifflin, Harcourt. So anyway... Uh, The book is a a good resource for understanding your credit score. Uh, Coming up, we've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk about Twitter's shadow banning, which we just learned about. Veritas has a new video or series of them explaining what that is. We're also going to talk about uh, the Democrats here in the state of Oregon have introduced their cap and trade uh, plan, and the Republicans are referring to it as the Manufacturing Phase-Out Act of 2018. We'll explain when we come back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Hour number two, brought to you in part, by the way, by Zero Res. In this hour, we're going to talk with Rachel DeGuidis. She's a reporter for the Daily Signal. We're going to talk about this effort to revise, revisit, Airmarks, the House is taking that up. In fact, there are hearings already scheduled, the 18th and 19th. We'll talk with her about why this has come up and uh, whether or not this is the exact opposite of draining the swamp, which was promised by the current administration. Uh, The president having made statements earlier today um, about perhaps the the necessity or the benefit of revisiting and reinstating, reinstating. Uh, Airmarks. We'll talk with her about that. Also, I invited Crystal Thornton, Summer Shore, and Rebecca Gurney to join me in studio uh, to talk about Thrive, a girls' night out. That's coming up, of course, on the 27th. So I hope you've marked your calendars if you already have your tickets. Sadly, we have sold out, and it's a it's a wonderful problem to have. But we want to let you know what our vision is and. Uh, make sure you mark your calendars for our next event that we'll be planning at some point in the not too distant future. So they'll be joining me to give you a little bit of a vision of what we are uh, are doing. Also want to remind you that the Roe versus Wade Memorial and March is coming up this Sunday at Pioneer Courthouse Square, 2.30. This is an Oregon Right to Life event, and it's an opportunity to uh, to bear witness uh, to the many years of abortion on demand in this country. Uh, the events begin at uh, 2.30. There's a, a march that's followed. It's a it's a wonderful event. I've been for many, many years, and I hope to see many of you there. Again, that's the Roe versus Wade Memorial and March. That's at Pioneer Courthouse Square here in Portland, the 14th. That's next Sunday, this coming Sunday, I should say, at 2.30. Archbishop Alexander Sample of the Archdiocese of Portland will be speaking. Nicole Bentz, who's the Northwest Regional Director of Students for Life, and Carly Olson, the 2016 winner of the National Right to Life June B. Thomas Oratory Contest, which is quite an accomplishment. They'll all be speaking, and there'll be worship and uh, and a time to uh, to reflect and all of that. So that's coming up this uh, this Sunday, two thirty at Pioneer Courthouse Square. Well, there's a new undercover video um, that features Twitter engineers, and they talk about ways to um, 
to ban certain content. They're calling it shadow banning. They're algorithms to censor opposing political opinions. And again, this is on Twitter. In the latest undercover project Veritas video investigation, current and former Twitter employees rather are on camera and they're explaining steps the social media giant is taking to censor political content that they don't like. Now, we assume that when we're on um, Twitter or we're on uh, Facebook or wherever we happen to be on social media, that what we are writing is being seen by those to whom we intend uh, to send it or to make available. But that is uh, less and less the case. We talked about Google yesterday and today about uh, Twitter. So Project Veritas, in their video investigation, uh, features current and former Twitter employees. Now, the video um, follows the first undercover Twitter expose and first suggests there will be others. Project Veritas released on the 10th, uh, which showed the Twitter senior network security engineer, Clay Haynes, saying that Twitter is more than happy to help the Department of Justice with their little President Donald Trump investigation. Twitter responded to the video with a statement shortly after that release, stating the individual depicted in this video was speaking in a personal capacity and does not represent or speak for Twitter, which is precisely what he purported to do as an employee. The video released by uh, Project Veritas uh, features eight employees and a Project Veritas spokesman said there are more videos featuring additional employees coming. On the 3rd of January of uh, this year at a San Francisco restaurant, a former Twitter software engineer explains a strategy called shadow banning that, to his knowledge, Twitter has employed. And he says this, on strategy, or rather one strategy, is to shadow ban so you have ultimate control. The idea of a shadow ban is that you ban someone, but they don't know that they're being banned because they keep posting and no one sees their content. In other words, you assume you're posting on Twitter that your followers are seeing what you've posted. But according to this uh, employee, this Twitter employee, um, you're posting, but they can't follow you because your content is not available to them. It is essentially banned. He goes on to say, so they just think that no one is engaging with their content when in reality, no one is seeing it. Twitter is in uh, the process of automating censorship and banning, says Twitter software engineer Stephen Pierre on December 8th of last year, saying this. This is a quote from the video. Every single conversation is going to be rated by a machine, and the machine is going to say whether or not it's a positive thing or a negative thing by the standard they apparently have decided. And whether it's positive or negative doesn't, inaudible. It's more like if uh, somebody's being aggressive or not, right? Somebody's just cursing at somebody, whatever, whatever. Uh, they may have um, uh, have point, but it will just vanish. It's not going to abandon the mind said it's going to ban like a way of talking. So it is going to shape what's seen and heard and read on Twitter. Olinda Hassan, a policy manager for Twitter's trust and safety team, explains on December 15th of last year at a Twitter holiday party that the development of a system of downranking expletive people is in the works. Yeah, that's something we're working on. It's something we're working on. I'm quoting, so that's why I'm repeating. We're trying to get the expletive people to not show up. It's a product thing we're working on right now. So in addition to making your content um, unavailable to those who would otherwise be your followers and comment on your content, the fact that no one is responding might discourage you from showing up at all. Well, the former Twitter engineer 
Conrado Miranda explains or confirms on December the 1st of last year that tools are already in place to censor pro-Trump or conservative content on the platform. When asked whether or not these capabilities exist, Miranda says that's a thing. In a conversation with former Twitter content review agent Mo Nor- uh, Norari, or something like that, on May the 16th of last year, we learned that in the past, Twitter would uh, manually ban or censor pro-Trump or conservative content, which are not necessarily the same thing. When asked about the process of banning accounts, Noari said, on stuff like that, it was more discretion on your uh, viewpoint, I guess, how you felt about a particular matter. So they are subjectively picking and choosing what content makes, uh, makes it on Twitter so that others can... Uh, see and consume it and respond to it. When asked to clarify if that process was automated, Noari confirmed that it was not. Yeah, if they said this is um, pro-Trump, I don't want it because it offends me, this, that, and say I banned this whole thing and it goes over here and um, they are like, oh, you know what? I don't like it too. You know what? Mo's right. Let's go. Let's carry on. What's next? I'm sure that made sense, but I'm <laughs> not quite sure what sense it made. Anyway, he also revealed that more left-leaning content would go through their uh, selection process with less political scrutiny. It would come through checked, and then I would uh, be like, he wouldn't just be, he would be like, uh, oh, you know what, that, this is okay, let it go. Um, He explains that this selection process wasn't exactly Twitter policy, but rather they were following unwritten rules from the top. So they're unwritten rules, he says. A lot of unwritten rules uh, and being uh, that we're in San Francisco, we're in California, very liberal, a very blue state. You had to be, I mean, as a company, you can't really say it because it would make you look bad. But behind closed doors are lots of rules, end quote. There was, um, I would say, Twitter was probably about 90% anti-Trump, maybe 99% anti-Trump. Well, they're certainly entitled to be anti-Trump, but censoring content they disagreed with is the question here. At a San Francisco bar on January 5th, uh, another employee details how the shadow banning algorithms targeting right-leaning are engineered. Yeah, you look for Trump or America, apparently that's right-leaning, America, and you have like 5,000 keywords to describe a redneck. Then you look and parse all the messages, all the pictures, and then you look for stuff that matches that stuff, end quote. When asked if the majority of the algorithms are targeted against conservative or liberal users of Twitter, this uh, employee said, I would say majority of it are for Republicans. So you've got several different categories, pro-Trump, conservative, Republicans. Well, Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe believes the power over speech Silicon Valley tech giants has is unprecedented and dangerous. In fact, it's not it's little known. What kind of world do we live in, he says, in uh, live in where computer engineers are the gatekeepers of the way people talk. This investigation brings forth information of profound public importance that educates people about how free they really are to express their views online and quote, Project Veritas plans to release more undercover videos from within Twitter in the coming days. And you can go to their website for more uh, information on this project. Up next, we're going to talk with Rachel Del Guidas. She's a reporter for The Daily Signal. We're going to talk about airmarks that in 2010 were banned by the House rules. Are they coming back in the same form? And what about the corruption that surrounded them? All of that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
My next guest points out that some conservatives are sounding the alarm over reinstating airmarks in Congress. They're responding to the president who voiced support on Tuesday for reviving a budgetary practice that critics say feed cronyism and corruption in government and does just the opposite of draining this, this swamp. Rachel DeGuidens uh, joins us. She's a reporter for the Daily Signal at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you all today. Now, what prompted uh, revisiting the, the notion of airmarks, which in 2010 the House banned? Well, the president said um, on Sunday or Monday, he said, well, I hear so much about how earmarks have caused great friendliness. He said he thinks that um, earmarks have helped lawmakers work together and get to deals. And so he said he heard that lawmakers, um, John Colberson from Texas, he's a Texas lawmaker, he had said the time is right to reinstate earmarks. And President Trump kind of responded to that um, call made by Colberson. He said, well, I hear, you know, they've helped with deal making. Maybe they would be good to revisit and other lawmakers on the Hill, like Mark Walker, who's the chair of the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest caucus in the House, he said that this is very concerning to him, and it's a slippery slope back to abusing taxpayer dollars. Well, one of the reasons that the House banned the use of airmarks is because of the abuse, the abuse of, of um, uh, power and the uh, influence peddling. Uh, remind us of why in 2010 the House decided no more. Exactly. Well, in 2010, they said no more because earmarks have taken taxpayer dollars while middle-class Americans who work hard want their money to be spent for good things. And they um, established things like tattoo removal parlors in California, pest control, um, water taxi service in uh, beaches and a beach in Connecticut, a sheep institute in Montana. And this is my favorite, a poetry gathering, cowboy poetry gathering in Nevada. So these are <laughs> events and, um, you know, this water taxi service in Connecticut that and things that taxpayers honestly don't need. And their hard-earned dollars are being wasted on these things. And while they might line the pockets of some politicians and some lobbyists, and while they get a kickback from that, the American people suffer. So that's why people like Mark Walker are saying that we can't revisit this again. Now, Representative Scott um, from Tennessee, he's a member of the House Freedom Caucus. He uh, said that bringing back the airmarks, um, he doesn't know that he's opposed to it, saying, and I'm quoting from your article, since Congress holds the power of the purse, members of Congress should be able to direct the Army Corps of Engineers to move more rapidly on a flood control project, for example. Uh, And I suppose generally when you're talking about airmarks, people would raise commendable projects as an example of how they might be used for the good of the the country. Uh, But as you've mentioned, that's not generally the case. But let me uh, play the devil's advocate. Why not allow Congress to make decisions on worthwhile projects uh, such as that um, Representative um, uh, DeJarlis uh, suggested? Exactly. Well, Senator Tom Coburn, he was uh, represented Oklahoma in the Senate from 2005 to 2015, and he just wrote an article in The Federalist, and he's been a big um, opponent of earmarks, and he was saying that even the broadest interpretation of the Constitution cannot justify earmarking taxpayer dollars that are supposed to go to serve the people, serve the country for these projects. And while you said there could be some noble things that happen with them, there's not enough oversight that um, can direct these dollars to make sure that there's not um, people being, you know, harmed by spending things in dollars on things like taxpayer money on this teapot museum that Tom Coburn spoke of, similar to the cowboy poetry 
um, reading events. So there's, while, you know, some good things may come out of them, there's no oversight. And Tom Coburn says that this funding should go through regular order. The Congress should vote on it. And we shouldn't be allowing lobbyists and um, politicians to earmark funds. And there's just not enough oversight. And we don't want to waste taxpayers' dollars. Yeah. So is that the appeal, that you can expedite a project? There's very little oversight. You can please your constituents on projects that may or may not be in the broader public's um, interest. Is that the appeal? And isn't it possible for legitimate projects, uh, such as um, uh, making a a flood control project move more quickly, couldn't that be done by other means without reinstating uh, earmarks? It could be done by other means. You're exactly right. Just look at the um, tax bill that Republicans just passed together um, in the Congress. We need to work together like they showed was possible passing that bill. And we don't need earmarks to pass a good bill. And I think the leadership showed that in passing the tax reform package. And as a caveat to that as well, taxpayers, they're very excited about, you know, having more money in their checks, you know, at the end of the month when this uh, tax law is, you know, being worked out, you know, throughout the states. And they're not going to want the extra monies that they're going to receive and the money that they're saving eventually end up going to these projects when they do pay their taxes again, you know, in the spring and the year after that. So, By saving money, it's great that they're saving money through this tax plan, but they don't want, you know, that to end up turning around and the money going to earmark. So you're exactly right. We can work together. Congress can work together. They've shown they can pass good bills like the GOP tax plan without having earmarks included in it. Yeah, and it absolutely requires scrutiny if you're talking about taxpayer dollars. One of the things we haven't mentioned is the fact that corruption and bribes were a part of um, these uh, earmark projects. Some of them were very big spending bills as well. And this, too, was an an incentive for uh, the House to say, we're not going to uh, permit this any longer. Exactly. No, we people have gone to jail for it. Duke Cunningham was one lawmaker. He spent time in jail. There have been multiple um, lawmakers who have used these earmarks as, you know, kind of kickbacks to uh, reward uh, lobbyists back home. And a lot of times, and Mark Walker brought up this point uh, when I was talking to him, a lot of times these lawmakers who end up, you know, voting for legislation that have earmarks attached when they were uh, in the congressional process prior to 2010, they were voting on these things and earmarking things that maybe their constituents back home didn't even support. So they were essentially not even being ethical and supporting the constituents that voted to send them mm. to D.C. on these projects that a lot of times they didn't even support. So that's why they're um, not appropriate to yeah. have. In yeah. Now, political reported, as you point out in your article, that the House Rules Committee is going to hold hearings for members on reinstating yes. airmarks on the 18th and 19th of this month. Um, so it's, it seems to be moving along. How strongly has the president uh, indicated his support or just um, suggested that it's worthy of revisiting? Well, the president said, he said, I hear so much about earmarks and how there was great friendliness among lawmakers and he had earmarks. He said, of course, they had other problems, but maybe all of you should start thinking about going back to a form of earmarks. So he said a form of earmarks, but I take that as, you know, a form of earmarks is essentially earmarks itself. So he has voice support for that. I have reached out to the White House for clarification on that. I haven't heard anything back yet, but I think it's incumbent right now upon lawmakers who are already speaking out like Mark Walker, who chairs the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest caucus in the House, to speak out and say, you know, this is not in the best interest of American taxpayers. And 
other groups like the Club for Growth, they've, they're coming out hard against this. And I would encourage your listeners and people across this country to, you know, call their lawmakers, support the Club for Growth and make their voices heard because this is going to be something that we're going to honestly push back against. And we want to make sure that um, taxpayers' dollars are spent wisely and not lining the pockets of lobbyists. Rachel Delgaitis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, uh, Rachel is a reporter for The Daily Signal, which is an online um, publication for the Heritage Foundation. Um, Responding to an offhand comment by the president regarding reviving airmarks, which apparently wasn't all that offhand, because as I mentioned, they're already... Uh, hearing scheduled um, again. Politico is reporting that on the night, or excuse me, the 18th, uh, there's going to be a, um, a hearing for members on reinstating earmarks, and then another hearing on the 19th with outside organizations weighing in as well. Now, I can imagine there are some lobbying organizations and other outside uh, groups that would be in favor of lobbying because it's uh, it's a way for members. Um, to grease the palms of those who have supported them in their campaigns. But uh, one can only hope that the House will uh, retain its uh, position uh, opposed to airmarks as we've seen them uh, used in the past. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with some of my coworkers, Crystal Thornton, Summer Shore, Rebecca. They're going to be with us, and we're going to talk about Thrive, A Girl's Night Out. It's coming up on the 27th of January. We'll tell you more about it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the uh, Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon. Now, I know that you have heard about Thrive by now. It's a girls' night out to which you were cordially invited. Now, the good news is, hey, we got no more spots left. The sad <laughs> news is, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't secure your ticket, we're going to miss you. But we want to let you know that this is an event. This is our first of what we hope will be an annual event. So there will be opportunities in the days ahead. But with me in studio are some of the uh, women here at KPDQ and the Fish who are going to be participants in this great opportunity for us to come together to be refreshed, to feel empowered, and to make 2018 the best year yet. And I know you might be thinking, you have no idea what I've already gone through in the first few days of 2018. How could this be the best year yet? Well, the truth is we can choose, despite our circumstances, to approach the days ahead in a way that can make whatever happens the best because we're growing in our faith. We're seeing God work uh, in our lives and things can work out. I can tell you because 2017 for me was like uh, 2018 might be for some of you. With me in studio is Crystal Thornton. She's the afternoon host on The Fish. It's such an honor to have you with us. I'm excited. This is the first time in a year that we've actually had an opportunity to talk to each other. That's true. In fact, it was just about this time of year that I had you. We need to fix that. So we'll talk. We'll talk. (laughs) Also with me in studio is Summer Shore. She hosts um, on The Fish. Are you a regular host or are you moving around different times? So that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Um, So I am consistent, regular on the weekends. You can hear me Saturday nights from midnight to 6 a.m. Saturday morning. Um, and so I'm I'm tracking that. I'm on that shift uh, consistently. And then I get to fill in everywhere, which is so yeah. much fun. I'm part-time because I've got two boys at home. And so that really gives me a lot of flexibility. But I get to kind of keep my hand in the trade, so to speak, and and interact with listeners and, and fill in. So you'll hear me in the morning sometimes for news, traffic, and weather. Next week, I'll be in for cat in the afternoons, in the midday, rather. 
Um, so yeah, and you're also, a little of everything. Also part of our promotions team, absolutely. And we also have Rebecca who oversees promotions for what, what fifteen thirty? How many stations? <laughs> <do> they, <make? laughs> they just keep adding them on, and it's a lot of fun. So we just roll with it. Well, um, <laughs> Rebecca does extraordinary work, and and letting you know what's going on with the various stations here. Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful job. I love working with both the Fish and KPDQ and True Talk eight hundred uh, to put together great events and great opportunities for us to connect with our listeners, for our listeners to get to know us, and and to just kind of really open our arms and invite invite our listeners into our home here at The Fish and at KPDQ. And that's kind of what this event is all about. Well, let's talk about the event. We are four of the six women who are going to be participating. Kat Taylor, who's also the midday host on The Fish, and uh, Lori Robb, who's on in the mornings. I think she's just KPDQ. Um, but let's talk about what Thrive is all about. We've, we've talked about doing a women's event for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Finally, we are hosting an event for our community. Tell them what this is about. Well, everybody's looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) Thrive is an opportunity for not only for us to meet our listeners, but to kind of just let you know that we are real. We, We are not just who you hear on the radio, but outside of what we do for a living, you know, we're moms, we're wives, we're praise and worship leaders. We are speakers. We are singers. We are uh, trying to do the best that we can to get by just like you are. And we want to impart on those who are going to be in attendance uh, an opportunity to just understand that no matter where you are, whatever dreams, hopes, desires you have uh, in 2018 and beyond, this will hopefully be a jumping off point where we encourage you, we inspire you, and we uplift you so that you know and you leave with some tools that make you realize that God's given you everything that you need. It's already in your hands. All you need to do is take that first step and he'll take two. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, the format is going to present an opportunity for many of the women whose names you might be familiar with to make presentations that will be an encouragement to you to remind you that God still has his hand on your life, that he has purpose for you moving forward in 2018. Uh, Summer, tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing at uh, at Thrive. So I'm so excited because I, I get to share. I mean, that's part of the whole thing of this is we get to share our hearts you know, a lot of times during the day, it's go, 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 go. And we don't have that time to sit down with girlfriends and hear about what's really on their heart and, and in their minds. So I'm excited to share sort of a little bit about why I felt called to radio, to speaking, to really using my voice for God's glory. Um, and it wasn't because of my strengths. It was actually because of the weaknesses and where God stepped in and really shone the brightest that I'm getting to do any of what I'm getting to do. Oh, and all of us can relate to that yeah. mm-hmm. to some degree. Now, Rebecca, you have sort of overseen all of the uh, preparations for this event. And part of that is just selecting the venue and what's going to happen on that day. Describe for our listeners, paint a picture of what it's going to be like at this beautiful venue where we're going to sit down together and have some girl time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful. The The venue that we're having this event at, Gray Gables Events, um, it's here in the Milwaukee Oak Grove area. And we went on a visit. You, you, and you went yeah. with us, Georgine, and 
It's it's a beautiful, it's often used as a wedding venue, but when we walked into the ballroom, we saw this great intimate space mm-hmm. where we could have, we could treat ourselves to a luxurious meal, yeah. but in a, in a casual uh, environment where where we just feel like a night out with the girlfriends, kind of what we talked, have, talked mm-hmm. about. And we hope that just the environment itself encourages people to feel comfortable to be themselves that this is a, a a group of people who are here to support you i i feel so blessed to work with the women here at the station and so supported by all the women who have who've worked on this event with me and i i just hope that we we continue to show that through the event that that we want to be supportive to our listeners in the same way. Again, we're talking about uh, Thrive, a girls' night out, <clears throat> Saturday, January 27th at Gray Gables Estate. Tickets are all sold out, but we wanted to let you know what uh, what to expect. Those of you who are planning to join us and others of you who want to have your pen poised above paper so you can make note next time we hold a similar event. And uh, we will hold a similar event at some point in the future. Now, let's talk about what this event is not going to be. <laughs> it's not going to be a beauty competition. No. Oh, Correct. We're not there to compare ourselves to one another. It's not going to be a time to set really, really high goals for yourself and then guilt trip yourself for not reaching them all year long. It's a time to be reaffirmed in who you are in Christ. It's not going to be an event where we're going to ask you, why aren't you married? (laughs) Why don't you have kids? I get that one. We're going to affirm that right where you are is where Mm -hmm. God has you. He's going to use you in ways that you perhaps don't even expect, but Mm -hmm. you are enough right now, right where you are. Absolutely. That's probably the strongest message that we're we're putting forward with this event. Mm-hmm. You're not too thin. You're not nope. too fat. Your nope. hair's just the right length. Not you're too old, not too young. <laughs> <laughs> and might I add, it is not a formal event. That's no. right. It is not. We are coming as we are. Now, you know, it's okay if you want to be the girlfriend who just kind of pulls out that nice little outfit. Do it. But as long as it makes you comfortable, because mm-hmm. Absolutely. that's what it's going to be all about. I'm right. looking forward to this just as much as maybe someone who's bought a ticket. Absolutely. Um, I'm just mm-hmm. so Truly. excited to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Well, we're excited that uh, many of you are planning to join us. And again, for those of you who didn't get a ticket this time around, I want to encourage you to keep your ears listening for a future opportunity because there certainly will uh, be one. And uh, we're, we're praying for you. We're looking forward to getting together. We're going to have a wonderful time. And when we leave that facility, on the 27th of January, we're going to be inspired and encouraged because we are women on a girls' night out who are going to thrive. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to thank you for joining us, Crystal and Summer and Rebecca. And for all the work that we've done together, I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to seeing it come to fruition because I think God's going to do something significant. Amen. I think so. Absolutely. I think so. And it's the response has been so wonderful. We are so energized to continue mm-hmm. doing women's events here on the Fish and KPDQ. So to all the women who couldn't make it, we, we, we're we hearing you and we're going to keep this going. <laughs> Next time around. I have to say, I'm, I'm going to get my hair did. So <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a big night. <laughs> Hey, thanks, girls, for joining us. Thanks Thank so you. Much. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back for our final, I know, our final segment. It's sad, but true. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I so enjoy working with the women here at KPDQ and the fish and all of the uh, uh, the women here at the um, at the radio stations that make up Salem 
uh, media. And it's such a, a luxury, really, it's such a, a, a tremendous privilege that we have the freedom to come together for fellowship and to encourage one another. But I'm always reminded that that's not the case everywhere. I was uh, reading uh, just recently about a, uh, a church in China, one of the largest churches there. It wasn't uh, it wasn't an underground church, but it was an unregistered church, which is something akin to underground, but not quite the same. There was an explosion that rang through the uh, the air earlier today, or that was actually yesterday, as authorities bombed and demolished a serially persecuted church in China's northern Shangji province. Golden Lampstand Church in Lifton, or Linfen, Shang, uh, Shangji, uh, was once a 17 million yuan, or about 2,603,380 uh, unregistered church, uh, paid for completely by the Christians who attended. On the 9th of January, Chinese military police detonated explosives situated in underground worship halls beneath the church, and they proceeded to demolish it, uh, its above-ground building, leaving it uh, in tatters. Now, you can imagine... This was an impressive edifice, and what the uh, the government may have thought was, we have destroyed the Golden Lampstand Church in Linfen. Well, the truth is, they destroyed a building, the church itself stands. But the story goes on. China's military police have been under the direct control of the central government since the head of the Public Security Bureau, which previously commanded it, was arrested last year. This indicates that the order to destroy the church came from China's top officials instead of the less powerful local authorities. And that is indeed a troubling sign. This is not the first time the church has faced persecution, however. China repeatedly cracks down on house churches, and this was one, despite the fact that it was a large edifice that was visible which are churches that refuse to register, often to opt out of government monitoring. Officials often uh, prosecute such choices, however, and some of the Golden Lampstand Church leaders have been imprisoned for one to seven years simply for serving at their church. Now imagine the pastor, the elders in your church who are uh, gathered up and sent to uh, Oregon State Prison for the sole reason that they are leaders in the church. Well, that's precisely what's happening there. The similar demolition of a Catholic church last year is uh, prompting Christians to worry that the central government will begin ordering the mass destruction of church buildings nationwide as new religious regulations go into effect next month. These regulations grant the Chinese Communist Party increased power over religion, paving the way for escalated persecution. The repeated persecution of Golden Lampstand Church demonstrates that the Chinese government has no respect for religious freedom or human rights. That's a quote from China Aid President and founder Bob Fu. China Aid calls on the international community to openly condemn the bombing of this church building and urge the Chinese government to fairly compensate the Christians who paid for it and immediately cease these alarming demolitions of churches. Well, at the as the church was being built in 2009, that was September, church members who slept at the construction site were awakened by 400 officials beaten as the building was raised. 30 of them uh, reached critical condition. This was in order to build an edifice in which they could worship. When Yang Esther Zhua, or I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, so I apologize for the mispronunciation, who was the daughter of two of the church's pastors, uh, learned of the beatings. She phoned home, but no one answered. Later, she learned that both of her parents had been arrested. This was in October of 2009 as punishment against house church leaders. Uh, Yang Zhuan, her father, spent three and a half years in prison. Her aunt, Yang Yongli, spent seven years incarcerated and received 30,000 yuan fine. Her mother, Yang Chai Chen, was sentenced to two years in a re-education labor camp and beaten while incarcerated, while her uncle Wang uh, received a three-year jail term and was fined 10,000 yuan. 
Yang Rongli, who has uh, been under government surveillance since her release in 2016, described the demolition of uh, rather two China aid reporters saying the police surrounded the Golden Lampstand Church. Patrol wagons guarded the church. Workers smashed the church's glass. At this point, excavators are digging into the church, but we are not allowed to enter or watch. The village head and the police from the local police station warned all the believers against entering the church. Now we really have no idea what is going to happen, end quote. Well, China A expo- China aid rather exposes abuses such as those experienced by Golden Lampstand Church in order to call out China's abuses of Christians and promote religious freedom, human rights, and the rule of law. Now, some might argue that this is a futile effort in the communist uh, China, but it is uh, a call to righteousness, and they are right to uh, to draw attention to what's happening there for uh, several reasons. First of all, to try to influence uh, leaders there, uh, but uh, secondly, to inform the church um, worldwide so that we can uh, be in prayer and when opportunity presents itself uh, to lift our voices as well, uh, trying to influence those in positions of influence that may have the ear of China's authorities. Uh, but just the latest example of uh, a bomb destroying a church that has been serially, as they put it, persecuted with an explosion that tore down this building that costs. And uh, in terms of what this means in, in China, 17 million yuan, this was uh, an unregistered church. It was paid for completely by uh, the Christians who attended that church. And it was just um, the ninth, which I believe is yesterday or the day before yesterday that this event took place. Um, so believers struggling to have a place to come together for worship. And again, it's a, it's a reminder to be grateful for the freedom that we now have. Um, one doesn't know if we'll always have it. We, it. It appears that that would be the case, but you just don't know. But we need to be grateful and take full advantage of the opportunities that we have to come together in fellowship. Um, because many places, many people and believers do not have that luxury. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to lighten things up. So I hope you will join us to do just that. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blinn for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.